Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Hello, and welcome to the War Room Podcast. I'm Genevieve Lester, the DeSeru Chair of Strategic and Theater Intelligence at the U.S. Army War College, and thanks for joining us today. Today's podcast is part of a six-part series on intelligence. The series approaches the topic from a variety of angles through a series of interviews with some of the field's leading scholars and practitioners. For a broad overview of several of these themes, be sure to check out the introductory podcast in the series, which I recorded with Dr. Jacqueline Witt, the War Room Podcast Editor. In this, the fourth podcast of the series, Professor Richard Betts, a renowned scholar of international relations, and Adam Dietrich discuss surprise attack and intelligence failure. Mr. Dietrich is a student here at the U.S. Army War College and an Army reservist and attorney. Let's turn to their conversation. So I'm Adam Dietrich here at the United States Army War College. And I'm Dick Betts, professor at Columbia University. Thank you for being with us here today, Dr. Betts. Uh, our first question we'd like to talk today about is intelligence failures. We often hear about intelligence failures and how the highest profile ones spark much to date and questions afterwards. However, very little is made of intelligence successes. Uh, why is it you think that we don't give the intelligence community more credit when there are successes? Well, this is an important question because we get a lot of attention to intelligence failures and they are often blamed for uh, things that go wrong in foreign policy. And what people don't realize is how much of what the intelligence community does that is right on the money, um, even when it comes to things like uh, terrorist attacks. Uh, people have not noticed that there have been a large number of plots uh, since September 11th that were disrupted by uh, the American government because of good intelligence. Uh, usually the stories about those plots are buried on like page 17 of the newspaper at the bottom of the page. Uh, so uh, for one uh, thing, people often don't know about intelligence successes. Not only uh, when they're revealed do they not get as much attention, but many of them are kept secret. Uh, also, uh, it's silly to expect that intelligence will always get it right. Uh, if there's a disaster once in a while, that's a terrible thing. We should try to minimize them, but it shouldn't be surprising when uh, we deal uh, with problems uh, all over the world day in and day out. Uh, I think of uh, good intelligence as like a high batting average. Uh, a, a batter who bats 300 is considered to be a really good hitter. Uh, even though that means uh, he's not getting on base a lot of the time. Uh, similarly, in intelligence, the problems that intelligence deal with are difficult problems, uh, usually involving enemies who are trying to conceal their plans and their capabilities from us. So penetrating that secrecy, finding out uh, what's necessary is very difficult. It's often done right, but too often just taken for granted. Another thing we undervalue uh, is small successes, uh, marginal victories in intelligence, because it's natural for uh, normal people to only be interested in or to be struck by the dramatic uh, big surprises, especially disastrous ones. Uh, but 
most of life, as well as most of government work, is dealing with limited problems from day to day in which you try to get things right the best you can, and it's two steps forward, one step back. Uh, and when intelligence gets these little steps forward right, nobody notices, outside at least, apart from the people uh, who get it done. Uh, I, I say most of life takes place at the margins, and so uh, saying that uh, some particular intelligence success wasn't very important because it was incremental or marginal, I say we have lots of those, and cumulatively, uh, people ought to appreciate them more. Oftentimes, the intelligence failures we care about the most are surprise attacks. Pearl Harbor and 9-11 are two of the most famous ones that frequently come to people's minds. Why are surprise attacks so successful? Uh, there are a number of reasons. Uh, one is that the attacker usually is very careful to uh, make plans and to execute them in ways for which the victim is not ready. And if the victim does get ready uh, and sees it coming, uh, often the attacker will cancel or delay those plans. And in those cases, uh, if there's been a warning uh, to the victim that an attack was imminent uh, and the attack is canceled, then it looks like the warning may have been wrong. So this, in many cases, contributes to what's often called the cry-wolf syndrome. That is, many successful surprise attacks are ones in which uh, the attacker had appeared to be preparing an attack a couple of times or more, uh, and then the attack didn't happen. So after two or three or four false warnings, it's natural for the victim's policymakers to take any warning less seriously. And in a number of cases, that's what happened. They explain away the warning as another false alarm. Uh, there are other reasons as well, because very often uh, the victim believes that it would be irrational for the attacker to strike because the attacker really doesn't have the capability to win a, a whole war. And indeed, we saw that in World War II with Japanese, uh, the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor seemed irrational because it was clear Japan could not defeat the United States in a war. In October 1973, both Israeli and American intelligence believed that Israeli capabilities were so great that the Egyptians and the Syrians couldn't possibly decide to be foolish enough uh, to challenge them. And that assumption that the victim will be rational uh, contributes to explaining away warnings and being surprised. Uh, so there are lots of reasons. And there's also the difference between what professionals would call strategic warning and tactical warning. Uh, strategic warning means that preparations to attack by the enemy are detected. Uh, military units being alerted and moved, ammunition being uploaded, uh, all sorts of other preparations uh, consistent with a plan to attack. Uh, and uh, th that uh, is the clearest form of strategic warning. But for something uh, like a terrorist attack, the problem is somewhat different. Uh, you may get a lot of uh, intercepted communications, uh, which Im 
imply that something is about to happen soon, and that's what happened before September 11th. There was a lot of strategic warning because there was a lot of intercepted communication that indicated there was going to be a major attack somewhere at some time in the near future. The problem was that's different from tactical warning, which means you see the attack actually beginning to unfold. Uh, and that's what we didn't get on September 11th. We didn't have the warning about exactly when and where uh, the attack would be. So there was good strategic warning, but no tactical warning. And in that situation, the strategic warning turns out to be useless. So there are various uh, things of that sort uh, in the way the human mind works in interpreting evidence or in the way that attackers can conceal uh, or distort the evidence about their preparations that make it hard for the victim to know it's coming. You know, Dr. Betts, we often hear about how the intelligence community is a large bureaucracy with currently 17 different agencies in the community spread out, and they have a complicated structure. Even today, uh, critics frequently suggest it should continue to be reorganized. What are your thoughts, however, on whether or not reorganization was necessary after 9-11? Well, there are often ways in which a change in organization may be helpful, uh, but very often... Uh, reorganization, I think, can be seen as the only available response to a problem when you don't know what else to do. Uh, as a result, in American government and especially in the intelligence community, we've had periodic major reorganizations, each time responding to some recent uh, set of events uh, that seemed uh, to be ones that might have been prevented by some different form of organization. But uh, we never seem to get it right because there are constant calls for reorganization again. Uh, the costs of reorganization are also uh, often underestimated because a major reorganization disrupts work. Whole offices have to be moved personnel change who they report to. Uh, there are other uh, complicated uh, uh, changes associated with reorganization that all divert uh, people from doing more productive work. Now, they may be worthwhile uh, costs to bear if the reorganization really makes a difference, but if the reorganization doesn't really make a difference, then it's uh, probably by some measure a net loss. Uh, the uh, uh, problem, too, is that most reorganizations solve a problem, but in the process may create a different problem. And there's a constant set of trade-offs in organization. For example, one of the longstanding debates is whether the American intelligence community should be more centralized or decentralized. Uh, after September 11th, uh, the pendulum swung in the direction of more centralization because it was revealed that there had been breakdowns in communication between CIA and FBI, which had let some terrorists travel uh, without uh, uh, being tracked properly, and so on, because information wasn't shared efficiently. Uh, and as a result, we had uh, a reorganization which emphasized more centralization under a new 
director of national intelligence. In some ways, that may have helped. In other ways, uh, it may not, because while it encouraged more sharing of information to avoid the problem that had uh, been associated with September 11th, uh, it worsened the problem that goes with widely sharing information. And so one thing we got was Edward Snowden, who was able to betray a huge uh, number of very sensitive uh, secret data because uh, he had had access to much more data than historically was common uh, because the imperative to share information seemed so important after September 11th. Uh, so uh, one reorganization uh, is likely to fix a problem but also to create a problem. Not always, but often. Uh, and between uh, that and the, uh, the disruption that reorganizations cause, uh, it probably takes a very compelling case for a clearly identified high-priority problem that would be reliably fixed by a reorganization to see that as the right solution. Often in complex intelligence bureaucracies, people are involved with problems in which they are not experts. This is often a question of economy and who is available, but should we be paying more attention to actual experts who have experience in that area rather than the generalists? It depends. I mean, intuitively, uh, it seems to make sense that you should always pay most attention to the experts who know the most about the problem in question. Uh, and in many cases, that's true. But uh, it depends on what kind of an intelligence problem you're worried about. If you're worried about being right about the way things are most of the time, that's true. If you're worried about anticipating an unusual surprise, it may be less true. Because, uh, in a sense, experts are often so knowledgeable that they understand all of the reasons that things in a particular country, say Russia or Saudi Arabia or wherever, why things have evolved the way they have, why things happen the way they do, uh, why uh, things uh, go on from day to day. And they understand all the reasons to expect that tomorrow is likely to be like today. And that little things that come up that seem like anomalies or warnings are really less important than these powerful underlying trends and uh, uh, circumstances. Whereas someone who's not an expert who is more ignorant, say, of the politics and sociology of Saudi Arabia, uh, might see a particular indicator that appears threatening uh, and say, whoa, whoa, what about this? Now, the expert may say, well, you're naive. You don't know all of the reasons X, Y, and Z that this doesn't mean very much. But it's in the nature of some of the biggest surprises that they were discontinuities from what should have been expected and in which those uh, strange indicators actually did warn of something that was going to happen that was out of character for that government or uh, that uh, leader of some sort. Um, 
and where the expertise in that sense led to an underappreciation of the possibility uh, for change. Uh, so it's probably good to have a combination of people looking at data. For most purposes, you want the expert uh, who knows how things are most likely to be over time. For some purposes, for a crisis or an unusual situation, you may want somebody else who can more easily think out of the box. Uh, there's no hard and fast answer to which one is always likely to be the best source of advice, uh, but because either one makes a different type of mistake, uh, the combination's more likely to give you better odds. Sometimes one of those fundamental obstacles uh, to getting success in intelligence estimates is that it's particularly difficult for analysts to get it right when the truth is implausible. Uh, one of the major examples uh, pointed out is Saddam Hussein's uh, retention of uh, some of the components of weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, but his reasons for not wanting to cooperate with inspectors or turn over that information. Uh, what can you tell us about uh, uh, that phenomena when uh, it's just difficult for the analyst to put forward uh, that uh, estimation when the truth itself is implausible? Well, it's in the nature of most uh, intelligence problems that the evidence uh, to give the answer to a particular question is incomplete and inconsistent. And when you're dealing with an adversary uh, about whom uh, there's some indication that a very bad move may be coming, uh, but it seems implausible because it would be foolish for that enemy to do that because they would probably lose or because it seems to make no sense, and the evidence is not 100% conclusive, it's natural for any normal human being to say uh, that really can't be what they have in mind. This evidence pointing towards a dangerous initiative is probably not uh, the real indicator. Uh, and since the enemy isn't crazy, it's not going to happen. Uh, otherwise, you have to say, it would make no sense for the enemy to do this, but I think he's going to do it. And that's not something most intelligent people would do. After the fact, uh, the appearance of what was or was not plausible or rational looks different. For example, the Saddam Hussein case. After the fact, uh, when we found out there were no weapons of mass destruction, we could see a rationale by which Saddam Hussein tried to have it both ways. Uh, tried to look like he was concealing WMD uh, while not having them, that he wanted to deter the Iranians or uh, at the same time uh, hold off the West from pressuring him too much. Uh, so his strategy may have seemed reasonable once we saw that he had done it. But before the fact, before the war and before we found out there were no weapons of mass destruction, uh, all of the evidence made it seem obvious that he must have them. And I say all of the evidence because it was all circumstantial. The problem was there was no direct evidence because it turned out that the circumstantial evidence was wrong. But all the circumstantial evidence pointed to it. Uh, he was con continuously trying to disrupt the inspections of the United Nations Special Commission uh, and then eventually kicked out the inspectors. Uh, he 
uh, did not account for having destroyed chemical and biological weapons after the first Persian Gulf War, when it seemed if he wanted to prove that he was in compliance with the requirements, he certainly would have uh, uh, given a proper account and evidence of having destroyed them. Uh, and if you're trying to hide things, as he obviously was, it's assumed that you've got something to hide. So all of the circumstantial evidence made it obvious that there were such weapons of mass destruction, and the truth that he didn't was implausible. Uh, it's only after the fact, when our brain is in a different gear, that it looks like we should have had a better intelligence judgment. Now, that's not to say that there was no mistake in the intelligence judgment before the uh, second war against Iraq. Um, I think there are ways that uh, the intelligence judgment should have been presented in a more conditional uh, way than it was. Um, but uh, that's a very different problem from, with benefit of hindsight, saying, well, this was a stupid mistake. So thank you for joining us here today at the Army War College, Dr. Betts. We appreciate uh, you presenting a War Room podcast, and we thank you for being here. You're welcome. I enjoyed it. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.